Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. Well, Tamsin and Dan read the paper on Sunday, May 22nd. Very good. 2022. Right. Oh, a lot of twos. Hot, steamy day. Yeah. It's supposed to be May, most beautiful days in the year in our part of the world. And it's hot and steamy. Yesterday, it was like, feels like 100. Yeah. So, yeah, a little super crazy. Yeah. Um, but... You know, as usual, we're powering through. Mm-hmm. Although we're not turning on the AC yet. Oh, None that of that. I, I None thought of the that, AC sir. was on. I thought the AC was on. No, no, no. I've been negotiating. Okay. You know, I've been shrewdly opening up the house yeah. at six o'clock in the morning, closing it, closing all the windows at like nine or ten a.m. Right. when the heat starts piling we'll on. see how that works out the rest yeah, of the day. Yeah, we'll see how it works. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm trying to be conservatious here. Okay. And, uh, you know, I prefer the fresh air okay. to the AC. Well, last week, yeah. we had a big discussion about Sugar Shack and Ernie Banks. And it's not Ernie Banks. It's got to have a different name. Ernie Barnes. Yes. Sorry. Go. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so that kind of blows my whole discussion. Because it was all about the you know the piece selling for fifteen million dollars yeah, yeah. so, at auction, Sugar right. Shack, yeah. and uh, the buyer was partially hoping to, he said, bring more recognition yeah. to Ernie Barnes. Right, and here I am using the wrong name. No, you're making his point that okay. uh, he needs more recognition. And so, and then almost immediately yeah. upon posting the uh, podcast, yeah. I start getting texts. And emails from uh, Cindy Wilson down in Durham, North Carolina, yeah. who let me know that uh, Ernie was from Durham. Really? Was born and raised in Durham. Oh. And uh, she sent me information <coughs> yeah. about his home, mm-hmm. etc. And uh, turns out he has quite a story. Yeah. Quite a story. He's an interesting guy. First of all, it's still amazing. That I mean, his paintings were selling for a hundred thousand or whatever. Right. The and the estimate for this painting was two hundred, and it went for fifteen point three million. Right. Okay. So that's amazing. Uh, but there's uh, lots of interesting things about his story. Uh, he has sort of a poignant story, and uh, his mother worked for uh, was I think a housekeeper mm-hmm. for a successful lawyer in the area, hmm. who, uh, t- you know, took a liking to Ernie Barnes, who went by the nickname June mm-hmm. at the time, and, uh, you know, would, you know, talk to him about literature and art and let him flip through his, you know, art books mm-hmm. and so on. So that's how uh, Ernie says he got introduced to art. Mm-hmm. But uh, he, you know, he had some, he had a hard time in school. Uh, people made fun of him. They beat him up. Uh, he had a really rough time. And he would kind of hide out mm-hmm. and sketch. And uh, in one, in one uh, write-up I saw, he was befend, be, befriended by the masonry teacher mm-hmm. who said, who was impressed by his drawings and said, you know, um, and that he took up weightlifting. Yeah, that was an old-time solution, right? right. So uh, the guys don't kick a sand in your face. He becomes a football player. 
he gets a football scholarship okay. to uh, North Carolina Central, mm-hmm. right? And uh, he, he has quite a football career. And uh, between his football and his art, he majors in art while being a football player. He gets drafted by the Washington Redskins, mm-hmm. who allegedly, upon finding out he was, in the language of the time, a Negro, mm-hmm. uh, they drop him. Oh. Uh, then he gets picked up by the Baltimore Colts, and uh, I think they drop him too. Yeah. Um, he, you know, he gets cut during preseason. Oh. Uh, then he goes to the New York Titans. Yeah. And he hates that. Yeah. And in fact, one of his good friends uh, dies on the field. Oof. And yeah. there's, there's, you know, and he claims it was heat stroke, and right. the Titans claimed otherwise. Um, and he gets out of there, but he ends up playing for the San Diego Chargers, and he becomes close friends with Jack Kemp. I'm trying to remember if I know this guy. What position did he play? Um, I don't know. Tackle, right. maybe. I'll look it up. If his tackle, he's pretty darn big. So I, don't, I don't know. He said he was big. Yeah, okay. Keep talking. Okay. Keep going. Um, so he plays for them. He plays for the Broncos. And then, I forget the whole story, but somehow Sonny Werblin yeah. uh, gets to know his art. Yeah. And he pays him for a year to be on the Jets yeah, as just, an artist. Okay, just so you're clear. The Titans and the Jets are the same team. Okay. Yeah. So go ahead, keep going. All right. So I I didn't know that. It wasn't clear. Okay. In the uh, random things I was picking up. Right. Or not. And I don't even know how much of all this is true. So he he pays him to do art mm-hmm. for the Jets okay. for a year. Yeah. That's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. He uh, ends up moving to L.A. Mm-hmm. And you know, there, you know, I'm leaving out a lot of details here. Just the highlights. He moves into a Jewish neighborhood, mm-hmm. and that's where he says he learned to take pride in his own culture. Mm-hmm. He saw another, you know, sort of group of people uh, with sort of wit and humor and uh, whatever, uh, um, taking mm-hmm. pride in their. Art and culture and language and, you know, rituals, mm-hmm. uh, you know, traditions. And it made him appreciate his own black culture mm-hmm. uh, and uh, enhanced his view of his upbringing. Yeah. And, then, and then, you know, there are many stories about how he, you know, uh, his various breaks, etc. Yeah. What, you know, where he was working, well, how, how he was working. Okay, so, uh, so he was he was an interesting, interesting uh, guy. So, so, clear. so he was an offensive lineman. So he's playing in the American Football League before the merger, which means that's when the Jets were called the Titans. They were kind of an inferior league. They weren't as good as the NFL, but they were a professional league. And he played for all these AFL teams. He played for Denver. He played for the Titans in Orlando. Okay. And he played four years. So there you go. Yeah. I had no and idea. So, and so once he's out in L.A., his, you know, his uh, art career yeah. uh, takes off. You know, I, there is more to be learned about... Uh, I think to be discussed about his style and his influences. Oh, yeah. all, all the articles say, you know, Michelangelo, you know, Rubens, blah blah blah. That's not really, I think, what you're seeing in his art. Those elongated figures. Yeah, it, it, he said it, he got the idea for the elongation from one of his art teachers, right. who said, "Think about, think of yourself 
what your body is doing yeah. when you're playing. The, the truth is, kind of interpret if you that. want to hear about someone who knows nothing from, about art, they look like caricatures. Uh, well, they but, are in a way, but yeah. I'm. But but that, that doesn't. Um, I, um, they're exaggerations in in many ways. With characters, uh, caricatures often are. Right. But think about El Greco. Yeah, I understand. You, have, you know, I understand. and that elongation, right? And uh, maybe not Michelangelo so much um, as the you know the mannerists. Who follow Michelangelo and kind of yeah. elongate uh, right. those but figures? Yeah. There's also then there's also you know you think about artists like even Thomas Hart Benton. Yeah, you know I see in there or maybe Reginald Marsh okay. who had those you know those New York figures in um, kind of uh, contemporary scenes of you know the burlesque theater the dancing etc. Uh, so you know I I think um, he's going to be an interesting guy to study okay. for many reasons, and again, it's a you know it's an interesting story. How many guys uh, um, play offensive linemen and major in art? I don't know, but thank you, Cindy, mm-hmm. for uh, you know spurring on the discussion. All right, so uh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, all right, so we have some other things. There's more or less interest. Uh, actually, we have a bunch of things. I don't know if we're going to get through all of them, but let's start. I have nothing more to say. Good. All I'm right, out. so I'll talk for the next half hour, and then I'll okay. be That'll be We'll it. be done. Uh, so the uh, Wall Street Journal has an article called, Does Your Mayo Need a Mission? Uh, and what does that mean? They have a picture of Hellman's mayonnaise, and uh, the uh, CEO of... Um, Unilever, the company that uh, has a lot of brands, including Hellman's Mayonnaise, uh, has uh, implemented what's called a brands with purpose strategy. And what that means is uh, that in his view, he put this in a few years ago, uh, every brand of Unilever should have a purpose that reflects deeply held beliefs. Those are his words. Uh, and his thought being, you know, beyond the, whatever the virtues the product might have, um, on substantive issues. And he said that, according to Joe, uh, brands with purpose increase sales twice as fast as those without. So let's be clear. I mean, we're all familiar with seeing advertising where certain products are advertised uh, in a way that they also mention causes they support or issues that, that they're aligned right. with right. or something like that. Uh, and one might say, well, I'm, you know, excited about uh, the stance that they're taking or I, I, I feel aligned with the position they're taking on X and Y. Maybe I feel warmer about them for that reason. But Jope is not saying that uh, this is how we improve the planet. Jope is saying it's, you sell more. He's thinking about the bottom yeah, line. Yeah, I think it's, you sort, sell of, more I think if, it's if sort of you the opposite. I don't think people buy it because they're supporting I think they're they're buying things. Uh, they won't buy products uh, where, you know, companies well, are right, but the, doing the wrong things. Yeah, but that's very little examples of that. So, so what he's he, he's really for every he's tasked everybody who's a brand manager and you know whatever, many many brands to identify causes or issues that are going to be celebrated in the headline by that individual brand or all going to different brands because, again, he's just trying to increase sales. Right. 
And what the article is about in the journal is, uh, does that work? Well, uh, the answer is no, uh, or appears not, although it's very hard to be that clear about it. But uh, there, here's a quote from uh, this fellow, Terry Smith of Fundsmith, Fund, which owns a lot of Unilever, and says, quote, a company which feels it has to define the purpose of Hellman's mayonnaise has, in our view, clearly lost the plot, uh, end of quote. Uh, put another way, uh, Unilever's share price and sales growth has lagged behind those of rivals Nestle, L'Oreal, and Procter & Gamble in recent years. Now, many people are saying it's because of this, because mm-hmm. they're not emphasizing you know, the virtues of the product, the characteristic of the product that normally would bring one to buy mayonnaise, what you call distribution or price or whatever. And uh, he's off on a, a you know, uh, you know, uh, an escapade here, which is not going to bring any anything in. Um, and in fact, uh, Joe Pass sort of backed off in uh, this past year. He said, "Look, I understand it's the icing on the cake. This idea of purpose, it's not the cake." We want to be absolutely clear our purpose isn't a substitute for having fantastic quality, innovation, advertising, and distribution. And then there's a discussion about their different forays, and I'm not going to now go into these various brands, but here's an example, okay? So deodorant brand Axe, a Unilever product, once relied on sexually charged ads featuring women wowed by the Axe effect. You've seen that, right? Mm-hmm. It ditched the spots in 2016 when Joe was Unilever's personal care head of product. And he switched the ads, urging consumers to shed traditional notions of masculinity, which is sort of a reverse approach, because he thought that was more value-driven. Yeah, so these people are just flailing around, right? Trying and to anyway, do anything to. But long story short, sales. So that sunk the product, and now they're back to the original axe thing. <laughs> uh, now sometimes maybe it works. Dove has done pretty well, and you see Dove is sort of a purpose-driven campaign. Uh, generally speaking, what they're saying is that. Um, at the end of the day, their assessment at Unilever seems to be uh, this isn't really working too terribly well. well. Here's the thing. Mayonnaise, yeah. um, I'm okay with mayonnaise. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, a lot of people are very anti-mayonnaise. Yeah. It's not good for you. Right. Um, but uh, Helmus has been making a point of, uh, you know, making mayonnaise with olive oil, yeah. et cetera, trying to make it into a healthier product. Right. But it does a little bit sound like well, you know, you should, you, you can go ahead and feel good about eating mayonnaise because we're doing good in the world. No, no. Which I think R- is R- yeah, very that's true, annoying. But that's not their purpose driven. That's not their purpose. Their purpose, <laughs> see, that's the problem. They're not, they haven't been able to identify purposes that go with the product. Okay. It's one thing saying well, there's this product and it's great thing about this product is not only tastes good, but it's good for you. It's not only good for you, but what this package won't re- will recycle. They're far beyond that. In the case of mayonnaise, their ads are saying, and we believe that too much food is thrown out. So, you know, we're emphasizing in our advertisements uh, the notion of food waste. We're anti-food waste. They don't link that to the product at all. Okay? They're just saying it's purpose-driven. You'll have a warm, fuzzy feeling when you see one. right. And that's... But does anybody even know, is that a a Hellman's ad? That's a Hellman's ad. And apparently they showed the Super Bowl ad. That to me is such nonsense. Well, but that's that's what he's talking about. Not the idea that the product is made in a sustainable way. uh, That's not it. No, no, no. But I'm still... It's two steps removed from that. Yeah. I still say it's to make you feel less bad about eating mayonnaise. Maybe. Maybe. But uh, that's not what Joe is saying. Jope is saying is he believes, and I think he guess he's backing down, but, you know, I don't know who believes what, uh, that people 
want to identify with even their mayonnaise, even, you know, whoever they're dealing with in a way that goes beyond anything having to do with that product. That's that's the marketing yeah, issue. Yeah, I think uh, it's more... I mean, he, he about, just wants you to have a subliminal, warm, fuzzy feeling maybe. when you see that product Look, made. I'm not going into the details of the article. They have Ben right, and, Mo- and Jerry's is one of their products. Uh-huh. Ben and Jerry's, you know, was putting out there, you shouldn't deal with Israel now. Okay? I mean, that's it's got nothing to do with ice cream. All right? Right. And they're going up, but you know they don't. They don't think that's the reason that their sales. Going See, up. this is why I make my own ice cream. Because yeah. I, you know, yes, yeah. I support my own. All right. So yeah. let me go to something else controversial in a different way. The Oakland Athletics are a terrible baseball team. Um, really, really says this says Mr. Met. Yeah. No, they are a terrible baseball team. Everybody knows that. But here's here's the thing. Uh, are they gonna? Are they so bad that they're gonna move out? of Oakland and abandon the city. Why does that matter? There were three major professional teams in Oakland three years ago. Oakland is sort of the poor sister, the poor relation to San Francisco, just across the bay, right? It's not nearly as prosperous. It's like night and day. Well, they just, just a few years ago, they had not just the Oakland Athletics, they had the Golden State Warriors, the basketball team played in Oakland. Maybe we'll realize that. And uh, of course, the Oakland Raiders, football team played in Oakland. The Oakland Raiders are now in Las Vegas. The Golden State Warriors moved into a new facility in San Francisco then went across the bay. The last team they have is is the Oakland Athletics and it looks like they're going. And the way that they're, they have a terrible facility they had, before the pandemic they were averaging 20 some odd 20,000 some odd a game which is manageable, which is okay. But uh, at the same time they were campaigning for a new stadium with the municipal authorities saying that we need a new stadium because we're not sustainable the way they are now, or at the same time talking to Major League Baseball about possibly moving. And to make that case, you have to show you're not sustainable. So where do they stand now? Well, they seem to be making themselves not sustainable. They have traded away all their players who are of any value, including three who are now on the Mets. And uh, they're not winning. They're terrible. They had a game the other day. They, they drew 2,400 people. Okay? Oh, my. But they're making a case that they're not sustainable. So they're going to municipal authorities with their handout and they're going to MLB saying, we got to go one place or the other and the odds are they're going to go to Las Vegas. Talk about odds. And it's, it was so bad. One of the players went to the Mets, Mark Canna, plays left field for the Mets. And he said, listen, I'm sympathetic with the situation in Oakland, but, you know, it's night and day here. I mean, the food here is better. <laughs> the food is terrible here. Here they have wonderful meals. And he's going on quite seriously about that. You know, in the clubhouse, they had terrible food in the clubhouse in Oakland. Mm-hmm. All the players love eating. All right. That's another. Okay. Let's enough about it. So I found an article in the New York Times yeah. called Look Good, Feel Good, Play Good, yeah. Smell Good. Smell Good. Yes. And it's about, it says, baseball's full of traditions and superstitions. For numerous players, a heavy dose of cologne yeah. or women's perfume is the unlikeliest of performance enhancers. That doesn't, I can't believe that. Sometime during the 2012 season, uh, how do you say Alcides? I don't Escobar? Know. Yeah. Uh, of Kansas City Royals grabbed a bottle from his locker and sprayed it onto Salvador Perez. Uh, Salvador Perez, I know. The other guy, okay. I don't know. Yeah. Perez warned his fellow Venezuelan close friends not to mess with him, yeah. punctuating his emotion with some colorful language in Spanish. Let me just tell you something. Uh, Salvador Perez is a veteran. He's almost 40 years old. He's six foot five. I would not mess with Salvador <laughs> Perez. I would not okay. be putting perfume on him. He got four hits that day. Perez? And smelled great. <laughs> God. 
the mysterious substance in the bottle had become a performance enhancer. So he's wearing it every day? Women's perfume. From then on, I bought all the Victoria's Secrets there was, Perez recalled. Oh, my recently God. In Spanish. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, uh, Yuli Guriel, is that how you say that? Yeah. He's an Astros yeah. first yeah, baseman. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's a young when guy. When people go to work, he's from Cuba. When people go to work, man or woman, they get ready, they dress up. I like it that way. I This is my job. I want to look good. I want to smell good. Yeah, the Cuban guys are a little bit different, okay? Well, it's a cultural thing. Yes. They do say it's a cultural thing. Yeah. Since he was a child, Toronto Blue Jays starting pitcher, Alec Manoa, who's Cuban descent, right. says he's been spraying himself with cologne. And uh, What cologne does he wear? Whatever his grandma gives him for Christmas. Alec Manoa okay. was on, on the Oakland A's before uh, they let him then go. You have, right. oh, oh, yeah. So Duriel wears Antonio Banderas. I, I don't think we need to know what fragrance they're wearing. Yeah. Well, well, let, me ask, Ingen- let me put Eugenio you on the spot. Let me, let me put you on the spot. Where's Prada? Would you, would you, would you, is that something you want me to adopt? Is that what's going on here? Are you looking to have me uh, look into uh, fragrance products? No, I always thought it was weird. But I do, I do think, I do, there are men who. Always wear cologne sure. or... Yeah. When I was growing up, it was aftershave. Yeah. You know, maybe that's the same thing. I don't it's, know. I think it's pretty similar. Um, and uh, I can understand that certain people, you know, feel that's part of getting dressed. Uh, they have one... Um, uh, Perez says, I'm a catcher, so I sweat a lot. Yeah. A little perfume helps. Oh, God. <laughs> the umpires say, oh, Salvi... You smell good. Oh, my God. You can't be serious. I say, thank you. Give me some strikes. Oh, my God. So Salvador Perez was the, was the main competition for Pete Alonso in the Home Run Derby last year. Oh, really? Yeah. He, he's, he's, he's generally been light hitting, but he did great in the Derby. He's a very good defensive catcher. He's a potential Hall of Fame player. He's a serious baseball player. And again, he's been catching for 15 years. So I can't really... Come down on Salvador Perez. The other guys, the young guys, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. They, and, you know, and, and as well, look, you said, it's a cultural I, I thing. I will tell you this. People Sa- feel they are not. Salvador um, Perez, many years, is a guy who was a good catcher and couldn't hit. And now he seems to be hitting. So maybe there's something to it. Maybe there's something to it. Right, I will so say. this. Think, is, I mean, you're thinking about playing in the softball game. Yeah. I mean, maybe you want to consider. I think they won't recognize your, me. Uh, you know, before game preparation. You don't want to announce your presence before you're there, Tim. So that's not uh, what oh, I Oh, I said, you yeah, know, well, there's still time for people to. You know, it's funny. This is not the same thing. But the Mets had a celebration yesterday for uh, es- Eduardo Escobar because he reached 10 years. 10 years is a threshold for uh, pension. Uh, qualification in the MLB. Not too many people do it. It takes something to play 10 years, and it was yeah. a big deal to him. And they had a little ceremony in uh, the clubhouse, and the guy who spoke was Max Scherzer, and I saw the tape. It was kind of funny. He was very nice. But the uh, announcers in the Met game, the radio, were saying, you know, and they gave him a bottle of champagne. And then one guy said, well, actually, it wasn't champagne. And all the articles say champagne. He said, it wasn't champagne. It turns out it was uh, cava. And the other fellow says, well, what's cava? And he says, well, it's like the Spanish equivalent He's explaining to him Spanish equivalent of champagne. I said, oh, well, you know, Escobar must be mean something special to him. They must have gotten a very special bottle. And he says, I'm not sure about that. I don't think it was very expensive. And the guy says, what kind was it? He said, Frexinet. <laughs> and both these guys never heard of Frexinet. He said, I never heard of Frexinet. I never heard of Frexinet. But I asked and they said it was $11. And they went crazy, saying, that must be awful. That must be swill. How could they do that to poor Eduardo Escobar? And I'm saying to myself, I like Frexinet. 
Great. Fraction great. is the greatest. I remember it was three down. <laughs> great. It's up no, to it's just, it's, oh. you know, you don't... Uh, it's very dry. You don't ask much of it. Yeah. And, it's perfectly uh, fine. You know, it's, it's like, it's like drinking, um, you know, just the functional equivalent of Prosecco. Yeah. Prosecco's not expensive either. No, right? but I think it's a little more bubbly than Prosecco. But, but he, he, here's the funny part of it. I don't think Escobar is familiar with Frexenet either. So he said he's saving the bottle from when they win the World Series. I mean, they're treating it like it's Dom Perignon or something yeah, like that. that. That may not be oh. the best idea. Well, listen. It's, it's, they say not, don't ever save any bottles, okay. is what they say. Listen. Just go ahead. That'll be a nice nice problem to have you, if they you win the World Series. You save a bottle, you end up never drinking it. It's Every a, day should be a special occasion. It's $11. Okay. Go ahead. You have something else. How to murder your Speaking husband. Speaking of special occasions. Yes. Yeah. What? Uh, there's a woman going on trial. Um, whose name is Nancy Brophy. Yeah. And apparently she's a romance novelist. Yeah. And uh, she's on trial for Murder. killing her husband. Killing her husband. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's illegal in some states. I think that, that makes uh, perfect she, sense. She apparently, it's not that she wrote a book about how to kill your husband. Uh, she wrote a blog post. Uh, she was contemplating, because she writes these steamy novels yeah. where you know uh, i guess people murder each other right. i don't know as one does and she was right. contemplating just how organized and clever and ruthless you need to be listen i don't care if it's a novel or a blog post it's not something you want online if you're on trial for killing your husband okay well this was a while ago this it's bad 2011 the... maybe she forgot she wrote it but anyway her husband uh you know went to work her husband worked in a culinary school and uh you know uh, was found there early one morning yeah um shot yeah, it's not a good thing to have a blog post about I'm thinking of murdering my husband and have him shot the next two years. It's not a good thing. Yeah. I understand culinary schools are very risky places. People go down all the time. But even so, uh, it's sketchy. It's a complicated story. Is she guilty? But she owns some guns. Oh, my God. She said, and, uh, she, she said they were for research. Oh, for my God. Novels. Oh, my God. And uh, so it... it it gets more and more complex, but we'll see what happens. They say sometimes she was crying, sometimes she was almost laughing. Uh, you know, people say they seem to have a wonderful relationship. Um, right but, up until um, he got killed. Yeah, yeah she, uh, you know, she had like she had bought a ghost gun gun kit as well. Yeah, and a you know she had extra parts right. as if she could replace. Listen, do you remember you know, the movie How to Murder Your Wife? No. Okay. It's a movie made. I know in, you know it very well. Yes, of course. It's a movie made in 1965. It's Jack Lemmon and Verna Lisi, who was sort of the sex goddess at the time. Uh-huh. And he was uh, Jack Lemmon was uh, you know the ultimate bachelor. That's who he was in, in New York, and he was quite celebrated for that. The character he's playing, and uh, who was uh, like a cartoonist or something like that. And oh no, he wasn't a cartoonist. He was a novelist. Yeah, a novelist. Mm-hmm. And uh, he ends up going to some crazy party in which everybody's drunk and some girl jumps out of the cape, Verna Lisi. Um, and he wakes up the next morning he's married to her. Now, okay. there's definitely advantages to being married to Verna Lisi. Uh, but one of the disadvantages is she doesn't speak English. She comes with a strange family. And, and his life as a this swinging bachelor is on the skids. And it's a comic movie. But, you know, he ends up uh, writing about how to murder your wife and sure enough she disappears at some point that's all I'm going to say uh, so this is like uh, art imitating life or life well, imitating it, art and it wasn't like they were immediately suspecting her it's like they're going over 
They're going. They never thought of that. They're going over. well, I mean, how many blog no, posts? No, no, no. It's were not. There? It's not like she was. It's not like they walked in her house and it, right. you know she. There were bloody clothes in the right. hamper or something. Yeah. But they they started looking at um, you know surveillance yeah. tapes of yeah. the area. Yeah. And she was like, her car was in the area. I, you know, was near the school. She did. And it goes and it comes back. Guilty. And they said, well, what, what were you doing in that area? She said, oh, I must have been going to Starbucks. I really, uh, you never mentioned it before. I just, you know, I never, I didn't remember. You know? Yeah. Well, all right. So a very quick hit here. Uh, there's an article on Peloton. Uh, Peloton, of course, did Bafo business during the pandemic. Cause everybody said they can't go to the gym. They ordered a Peloton bike. And their biggest issue was getting the Peloton bike orders filled. They had supply chain issues and they were hit so hard with demand that there were delays in getting them. But the, the stock rose. Everything was fantastic. So in the middle of that, they committed and they began building a huge new factory in Ohio to build Peloton bicycles. And now, guess what? The COVID receded and uh, they're not selling nearly as many bicycles. And they have, even though they've cut the price almost in half from $2,400 to $1,400. But, you know, the demand is just not there. And they now have a facility that they can't use. So, so what are they going to do? They sold it. Oh. They're never going to open it. And they are going, I think in the toilet, maybe a little rough. But I think the company, let me give you the exact figures. I think it was worth uh, something like, let's see. Uh, yeah. It was worth nearly $50 billion a year ago, and now it's worth $5 billion. That's quite, wow. a, quite a downturn. They're uh, laying off people like crazy. Um, and the <coughs> quote from, uh, they brought in a new uh, chief executive officer, as happens in situations like this. And here's his quote. I don't care particularly why they thought that COVID was the new normal, except insofar as to inform me who should be on the bus. Which means he's firing everybody who had anything to do with expanding, you know, it's a, you know, the supply chain. It's exactly the opposite of the supply chain problems you hear now. They said there's no such thing as too much supply chain capability. There, mm-hmm. There's a quote here. here. Yeah, it says, yeah. it says, well, it turns out there is. Yeah. And uh, they overreacted to COVID. But just for the record, yeah, you actually like Peloton. I like it a lot. Yeah, I like it a lot, but uh, that doesn't mean they should build fifty thousand of them. So. No, but I mean it, it's uh, it's too bad. It's a good product. It's a in good many product. Ways. Well, they'll keep, they'll keep making it. They'll keep making it. Uh, all right. So you had what? What did you have? I can't even. No, if you're it. looking for some fun, yeah. Um, how about going to a piano bar? Oh yeah, yeah. How yeah, do I you like feel it. about piano? Bars? I love piano bars. It's not that we sing along or anything. Well, that's you know that's the sad thing. You know, it's too bad I can't sing. You could sing. See, here's no, I couldn't sing in a piano. No, yes, you could. Here's the problem between the two of us. Okay, I have the nerve, but I can't sing. You can sing, but you don't have the nerve. And there you go. So uh, we have to put it together. So anyway, we we have we have a piano bar in our area. Oh yeah, we've gone. How about we've gone to a piano? We've gone to a piano bar. So and it's a it's a restaurant where they're. The piano bar part is adjacent to the right. eating part, so you can hear what's going on. Right, yeah. And it isn't uh, always the piano player who's singing. Sometimes yeah. the uh, you know they're the no, audience. Of is course, singing. that's what piano you know? bar is. People. And they have shtick. Yeah. yeah. Well, in the the article in the New York Times is mostly about uh, people doing their own thing. Yeah. Uh, playing the piano and singing, etc. 
And so they mentioned some good places to go. And in fact, at the end of the article, yeah. there's a whole list of all these places to go in New York. And some of them are, are fairly new. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if, uh, if you're interested, you could go to Melody's Piano Bar, Brandy's Piano, Piano Bar, the Duplex. Yeah. The but, nines. Okay. Some of these places are new and they're very snazzy. Right. But, but you know, some of them are very. Here's the thing key. I think. Here's the point of Epicystems. How much people appreciate it, haven't been to piano bars. Based on our experience in New Hope, people really put on a show. It's not like you're there and your aunt starts warbling, uh, Oh Danny Boy, and everybody says, oh, That's cool. That's not it. These people come with their own music. Uh, they usually have it on their iPad. They hand it to the guy playing the piano and they have rehearsed. But they follow particular players. I don't know what that means. They, they come. They have. They they often have a relationship with the piano but, but that, player. They there. do, but that's and and. But but that's not what I'm talking about. My point is, it's a polished performance. Okay. Oh, Daniel. It's, Daniel, it's very you, you are overstating. You think not? They think they're polished. I think sometimes they're sometimes they're really bad, but sometimes they're really they, good. That's why it's, you can't just walk in there and say, "I think I know okay. the words." So to, uh, you know. Th- this article is about is not so much about. The general public joining in. They say sometimes that happens. But they do say that at piano bars, you can be good because it's live music, but it's not a performance. Sometimes it's just background music, but sometimes, you know, everybody stops and listens. But it is a performance that is engaged with the audience in a way that uh, others are not. So in general, when you go to a cabaret show, in, in, because oh. it's a small setting, yeah. the performer is more engaged with the audience. Oh, yeah. But this is even a step. Yeah, it's like a party. Beyond that, it's like you're at a party and there's someone who says, gets in front of the piano after a couple of drinks and they start singing. And uh, and the article talks about how much uh, these performers love to do it to the extent oh, sure. that if you know they asked one guy if you know if he won the lottery would he still play and he said well maybe not well yeah probably yeah I no, still go I, yeah the people who do yeah. it love it but I, I think it's a lot of fun and it is kind of a party feel to the whole thing and people do sing well and I, I you know and the people encourage them there's a lot of you know good feeling and support and stuff like that it's all good. Right. It's all good. So there are different ways. And they're have, serving drinks. There are different ways to have <laughs> social engagement. Yes, you're right, right. You know, it's not just about going out to dinner and you just talk to your spouse. No, 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 Here no. you're, you know. Well, that's true. All right. So, uh, uh, yeah. Here's some two, two link stories about pain. And <laughs> First of all, here's the headline. Common medications might prolong aching back. And what does that mean? New study, you know, these studies are always impossible to interpret, but this is a fairly extensive study, which now says that, in fact, while the normal recommendation for people who have uh, back pain uh, and chronic back pain is to take ibuprofen and then possibly steroids on top of that if the uh, ibuprofen, read Advil, ibuprofen, uh, whatever it is, Advil, Motrin, that's what we're talking about. If that doesn't get the job done, you go on to something else. They're saying, no, no, that creates chronic back pain. If you have back issues, you're better off taking no medication. They don't say it creates it. Oh, yes. The study, the study. um, It causes it to become chronic pain. No, it doesn't cause. The study 
Yeah. Um, shows that the people who do that yeah. end up with chronic right. pain. Right. Okay. It's more likely. Yes. I don't think they really understand how any of this is working. Well, there's a difference between correlatives and causation. We can right. get into that. That's a complicated subject. But, but anyway. But the bottom line is what they're heading towards is recommending that you do not take Advil or Motrin. Okay. And that you tough it Got out it. instead. Right. In fact, not the, only one guy that, at the end, yeah. Say, say what you're going to say. The one guy at the end says, you know, uh, Dr. Weinstein, senior vice president for health at Microsoft, wishes people would rethink their instinct to reach for the uh, reach for Advil. He said, look, if I get back pain, uh, and he was editor in chief of the medical journal Spine for 28 years, I go out and take a run. Right. I've heard that over over the last ten years. I've heard a lot of people saying you don't rest. Right. You get back into it. Right. And that helps the injured areas kind of repair. Yeah. Uh, so. So I don't, I don't know. You can take that one of two ways. Uh, I believe either, that. I. I really. That would not. be a big reversal if it, if that were the case. A lot of people take a lot of pills for that stuff, and if it turns out it's counterproductive, that's a that's a one eighty. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it's a good thing. Well, look, I don't take, I don't take the pill. And but you the, complain. I don't complain ever. You complain constantly. I complain never. I don't think I ever complain. I right, say so here's something, <laughs> and here's the final pain article. Got a problem with the IRS? Take a number. I like this kind of article. This woman, Laura Saunders, writes the so-called tax report for the Wall Street Journal. So she finds herself in an issue where she uh, can't really get her refund because. Uh, the tax people need to be satisfied that she is who she says she is. They need some ID information or something like that. And she's not satisfied with their way of uh, confirming her identity because it means that you're sending something into a site she doesn't like. So they say, that's okay. You just show up in person. We have uh, sort of open uh, meetings uh, or open, open offices for people who come in with individual issues every so often come by. So she does that. And it is a disaster. It turns out, uh, she just gives her experience on Saturday, May 14th. She waited five and a half hours outside an IRS office during one of these open uh, taxpayer days uh, for walk-in visits. Um, And that's because uh, they don't have enough people, she says. They had five people there. She got there 8.30 for a 9 o'clock opening. Uh, She was 50th in line. Uh, After a short time, there were hundreds of people lined up. You're waiting outside. There were no chairs. You had to stand out in the heat. Uh, she, you know, she was afraid to eat or drink anything because obviously there are no bathroom facilities. She finally gets in. They solved her problem after five and a half hours, but there were many more people online. And then they told her, well, it's a good thing you got in today because we're not doing these walk-in days anymore this year. Oh, my God. And and people say, well, can't you resolve it by phone? They say, no. Uh, there's someone from the National Taxpayer Advocate uh, Agency say that only one in 10 callers get through the agency, one in 10, and that there is a, they have something called courtesy disconnect, where the IRS is programmed to disconnect you after a short amount of time, after you wait on the phone. So you can't get through. <laughs> it's a disaster. It's a disaster. It's a disaster. But she made the point that once she got to talk to somebody, they were very nice. So uh, you can look forward to that. And the, the bottom line is, do you need more, you know, does the government need to fund the IRS? Uh, yeah, I guess. Maybe. All right, finally. Yes. Um, this is just a basically a one-liner. No, go ahead. There's an article in the uh, magazine section of the New York Times um, actually uh, describing a 
word used in their family. This is by Vanessa Hua, and uh, she talks about um, uh, a, a word used in her Chinese family, yeah. uh, you know, basically instigated by her grandmother, who only spoke Mandarin, spoken yeah. Mandarin. And uh, the word or phrase is mama hoo-hoo. Okay. And what does that and mean? And it means so-so, mediocre. You know, kind of mama hoo-hoo, you know? Right. Sometimes you need a word like that to say, you know, how was the food there? Oh, mama hoo-hoo. And uh, she says it comes from, um, in, in Mandarin, ma means horse, who means tiger. So it's like tiger horse, horse tiger. And uh, she thinks it has something to do with, you know, an artist who changes direction midstream and puts uh, a horse's body onto a tiger's head or vice versa. Right. And, uh, you know, um, probably didn't really uh, result from that. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, I I'm thinking of new, new ways to uh, use this word. I think it's, you know. All right. Um, it sounds like a good one to me. She, she describes when, when uh, she was taking uh, her kids on a trip. They couldn't go anywhere interesting. Um, they kept wanting to go to Hawaii during the pandemic, and they, they couldn't quite do that. So they go on a trip to see some family, and uh, they're all kind of grumpy in the car. And, uh, uh, you know, the mom asks them, are, are they excited? And they say, eh, this trip is kind of mama who." Nothing burger. It's a nothing burger. It's a nothing burger. But Mama Hoo Hoo sounds more fun. All right, you use that. All right, this is cool. Tamsin Green. Well, I'm just so I'm thinking more about the art thing. You know, first of all, I do rattling on my head. I think I do know the Ernie Bourne story. I think it's it's registered with me. But but the 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 big artist at that time in sports was uh, Leroy Neiman. You remember that? Completely different style. I understand. No, but I, I don't think they're contemporary. Barnes would have been. Oh, no, really? no, no. That's definitely contemporary. I mean, Neiman may have hung on a little longer. No, no, no. They're contemporary. They're totally contemporary. Okay. Um, okay. Completely Enough. different style. We'll look into that. And no, I think, uh, but the point is. Um, I'd be curious. I'm going to look I, up. I actually, I like Barnes' style but, uh, much more than, than Leroy uh, Neiman's. But, but I, when no I'm going to look up, that. I think Barnes did a lot of sports related work. That's what yes, in fact, sometimes he got turned down by galleries because he was a, a sports right. okay, now I'm a artist. So let me, I'll look up some of his sports work and, you'll, you, and I'll let you see whether you can determine whether it's a Levi No, I've been looking or, at or, it, but I would be interested if you feel it's familiar to you. Yeah, I'll look it up. Okay, okay so this is your Tamsin Ranger. We got that. I'm Dan Abuhoff. And what is the thing? What? Are, what? Dan huh? and Tamsin read the paper. Tamsin and Dan read the paper. I thought you were asking me about Mama Hoo Hoo again. <laughs> Well, uh, see you next week. Indeed.